Well, let's open God's word together this morning. Isaiah, chapter 49. We are continuing a series, a four-week series in the book of Isaiah, looking at servant psalms, servant songs, and asking who is this servant? What is he there to do, and why does he matter for us? Isaiah 49. And as you're turning there, um, before I was a pastor, and actually partly while I was a pastor at one, one point, I worked for the world's largest computer company. You might know it. Three, three letters, I-B-M. Yes. It stands for I've been moved. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Everybody in the company would tell you that. <clears throat> and I worked as a service engineer service technician, and we would continuously get service calls to, to work on machines that were broken in some way. And um, sometimes the hardest and sometimes the easiest machines to work on were ones that had no light whatsoever coming out of them. And yes, we would go through the kind of standard service procedure that you would get if you called somebody asking for computer help. Well, is it plugged in? Is it turned on? Well, if all those things were true and the power was working and all that, and we couldn't get it to do what we wanted it to do, and it was just dark, totally dark, we would take it down to what is, we would take the machine apart and we would take it down to what is called minimum config. Minimum configuration. Basically, the machines that we were working with were built with redundant parts. So that if a certain part and it failed, the machine would keep running until we could replace it. Well, if that failed, you could bring it down to its bare minimum essence of things that would work, that would make this thing come up to at least a place where you could work on it. And once we got it to that spot... If that didn't work, then it was like pretty close to, you have to replace a bunch of stuff. But if you could get it to that spot, you could get things working. So here's a question. What's our minimum config? What's our minimum configuration to live? Now the world might give us very, very different answers than the ones that we are going to explore here today. And... If you look at the way the world is trying to live, you will know that they are missing a key element of their minimum configuration. We were designed to live with God. We were designed to never be apart from God. We were designed to be filled with God's light. And so our minimum configuration needs the light of God. And for the nation of Israel at this time, 700 years before, the, before Jesus came into the world, they were living in darkness. And the reason they were living in darkness is because they had left the God of light. They had rejected their minimum configuration. They had rejected the main thing that made them the people of Israel the main thing that made them the people of God. But in this passage in Isaiah, 
starts off with this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. What he's saying and what we're going to explore today and what we should do with this is that we should rejoice that God has sent us light. We should rejoice that God has sent us light. So let's read this passage this morning. Would you stand with me as we read Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 8? We will read all the way down to first, we will go through all the way to verse 13, but we'll just actually just read the first seven verses right now. <clears throat> let's hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserve of Israel. I will make you a, as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. You may have a seat. We should rejoice that God has sent us light. Again, this comes at a place in Israel's history where they are on their way or they're about to be on their way into exile in Babylon, a place in, sent into darkness because they embraced darkness. And we need, just as they do, light. We need clarity because not all things are clear for us. Not all things make sense. But when God gives us the light, he gives it to reveal things. So what does this light reveal? Well, first, this light reveals the mission of Jesus. Look with me. Because this is talking about a person. The Lord called me from the womb. He made my mouth a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. This is talking about the mission of Jesus. Now, I can say that, but let's, let's get there because this is Isaiah writing, okay? How do we know that it's Jesus? Well, because Jesus' mission looks like several things that are already in existence. His mission is like Isaiah's, except greater. Isaiah was called before ever leaving his mother's womb, 
From the body of my mother, he named my name. And Isaiah was called to prophesy the word of God, to proclaim what was going to happen, to proclaim what the true state of Israel. He was to proclaim that to the nation. And when truth is picked up by one of God's prophets, one of God's proclaimers, guess what happens? Sometimes it hurts. Hebrews 4 says, the the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of um, bone and marrow, of soul and of spirit. And he says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And then it goes on further. So how is this like Jesus? Well, Jesus, in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus himself is the Word of God, this sharp sword. And when he spoke, it divided things clearly as they were. You have heard it said, but I say to you, has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. Because guess what? When we are poked (laughs) by the word of God, we will want to react. Hopefully, by God's grace, we react in humility and confession and repentance. Other times, we don't really want to hear what God has to say. So we respond with our hackles raised. Well, if you look at the life of Jesus, how was, he, how was he received? How was his word received? Everybody just fell on their faces, confessing their sins, asking for the forgiveness of God? No. <laughs> over and over and over again. We even studied the passage this morning in Sunday school where it says that they tried to kill him. They plotted to destroy him. Why? Because his words were a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. The light showing what he was to do. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And in God's quiver, in God's bow, God always hits his target. And then he says this in verse 3. He says, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. What does that mean? Because Israel's a nation. You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Well, Isaiah was representing Israel, both to God, and then God was working through Isaiah to Israel. And then Jesus comes, and what happens? He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The temple being the center of Jewish Israel religious life, of everything. And Jesus is saying, that building of stone is not Israel. I am. But then we get to this passage of how Isaiah is different from, or how uh, Jesus is like Isaiah. And this one's a little strange. It says, Because God says to this servant, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. So we think glorifying. Oh, okay, so success. 
God will get glory, it'll be magnified, it'll be wonderful, and everything will go great for me. And then the next verse, what do we see happen? We see, but I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Anybody else doing, trying to glorify God with your life? And you just feel like you're hitting up against a brick wall? You're trying to teach your kids about Jesus, but you say that one second, and then the very next second, they do the exact same thing that you said. Don't do that. That doesn't honor God. Or us adults in our lives, we just have that little inner thing with ourselves, and then the next second, we do the thing that we just told ourselves, based on God's word, that we wouldn't do. And here Isaiah is sent. And you remember how he was sent. He sees this amazing vision of God. He falls on his face. And the Lord asks, whom shall I send? And then Isaiah, it is only the grace of God would enable him to say this. He says, here I am, send me. He gets cleansed of his sin. And then what does God say? He says, go, you, are, you, shall, be, you shall go but no one shall listen to you. What a great ministry. (laughs) And so no wonder he says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. How's that like Jesus? Well, Jesus was on the earth for approximately three years. And if you looked at his the scope of his ministry at that time, you would look at it as rather an abysmal failure. Because the people who were supposed to be ready for him, this entire nation was waiting for their God to come. And he showed up, and the overwhelming majority of them rejected him. And over and over and over, Jesus says he was amazed at their lack of faith. He looked at them in anger when he healed a, when he was asking about healing a, a man with a crippled hand on the Sabbath, and they said, "Do that on the other six days." And he looked at them with anger because of their hardness of heart. And he went, came to finally to Jerusalem. He says, "Jerusalem," and he started to weep over the city because it was the city that killed its prophets over and over and over again. So yes, Jesus may have had the same, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity, because he ended his life at the cross. Not yet seeing what would happen, but Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before Christ, he endured the cross. He endured all these things, just as Isaiah says here in verse 4, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. This is not about the servant's labors. This is about the glory of God. Jesus' mission is like Isaiah's, except greater. Secondly, Jesus' mission is like Israel's, except greater. Because look what it says in verses 5 and 6. We'll start in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, this is verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Do you know who was to ha- do you know who had that privilege before Jesus showed up? The nation of Israel did. They were called out, a people set apart, a people to be holy unto the Lord. Why? So that the nations would look and see that God had chosen them. That God did make a difference. That they were his people. And what happened? Right from the get-go. In the wilderness, when they're delivered out of Egypt by God, they start grumbling. They start complaining. In fact, they're sentenced to another 40-year roundabout in the wilderness because they rejected God and they didn't have faith in Him. And then when they got to the promised land, they rejoiced and they celebrated God. And then what, what do we, what's the next book that we have? Judges. Where every man did what he thought was right in his own eyes. And it goes bad. And then they ask for a king, just like the other nations. Well, it's going so great with the other nations that God says, okay, here's what's going to happen if I give you a king. And they king after king after king, even the really good ones of whom we have promises about. David committed adultery and then killed the husband of the woman he was sleeping with to try to cover it up. And God sends prophet after prophet after prophet to these people to call them to repent. To turn from their wicked ways. To turn back to the God who had rescued them, who called them by his name. And time and time again they said, no, no, no. And the first time I read through the Bible, I started in the Old Testament Kind of hard, really, really hard once you get to Leviticus. But if you get to overcome that hump, you're reading through it. I'm reading through it, and I'm thinking, man, these kids, these guys, this whole nation is a bunch of whiners. And look at all this, all these good things that God puts before them, and they keep messing it. They keep rejecting it. Small wonder they give them over. I'm glad I'm not like. And that's when God hit me with his word. He says, guess what, Aaron? You're just like them. Every one of you in this room is just like them. You may not have to go through a literal desert and grumble, but there are times where you have doubted the Lord in a faithless way. You have grumbled against the good that he brings to you. You don't really believe Romans 8 verse 28 that says, for all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so what, is, what has to happen? Israel can't do the job that they were called to do. We can't do the job we were called to do. We can't be who we were made to be on our own. So what does he say? 
His mission is like Israel's except greater. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to what? To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. He says it is too light a thing to save the nation of Israel only. That's small potatoes. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may not reach just the Jewish nation state, but the entire world. The end of the earth. See, his mission is like Isaiah's except greater, and his mission is like Israel's except greater, but his mission is like nothing and no one else at the same time. For this is worldwide salvation. Not universal salvation, but worldwide. That every tribe, nation, tongue, people, and language shall be gathered to God's people and be his people. And so what happens? Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. See, the light reveals the mission of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus culminates in being despised, in being abhorred by the very nation in whom he was to come, the very nation he was born into. But yet that's how we're to know that it's him. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Because that's where God was glorified. That's where he did what none of us could do for ourselves. He willingly put himself on a cross for our sakes to gather back not only the people of Jacob and the preserved of Israel. That is where he became the light of the nations because at that time the light was lifted up as he said in the Gospel of John that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And the light reveals the mission of Jesus. The light reveals what's been going on all along, the plan that the whole time. I mean, we live in an amazing day where, when I was, and this, whatever, um, when I was a kid, we didn't have smartphones. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it, I say that because it's such a contrast to today. In my pocket, well, not right now in my pocket, it's over, sitting over there, but in my pocket, I have, the, I have a flashlight accessible to me 24-7. That's one of the coolest features on a phone ever, a flashlight. Do you know how much I use that? Tons, especially now that I'm older and I've had lots of kids and my night vision is disappearing like fast. 
I can barely see down the stairs. The mission of Jesus reveals what? The light reveals the mission of Jesus. What's going to happen? What has happened? We're able to see because the light has shown. We're able to see what his plan is. And when we are able to see it, when we are given eyes to see it, when the light comes upon us, guess what we are to do? We are to believe it. We are to believe it and receive it and rejoice that God has sent us the light. The light not only reveals the mission of Jesus. Jesus came for even a much bigger purpose than than just salvation of the earth. The mission of Jesus is bigger because the light reveals something else. Secondly, the light reveals the heart of God. Now we're going to read verses 8 through 13. And you can stay seated for this one. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out to those who are in darkness, Appear! They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north and from the west, and from these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. The light reveals the heart of God. So in this passage, what is the heart of God? Sometimes we think the heart of God is just to keep us in suspense. The heart of God is to keep us in our suffering. The heart of God, sometimes we don't even know. Or we think we don't know, and we've heard it before. So let's be reminded this morning of what the heart of God is. Well, the heart of God at first is for salvation. Look what he says to his servant. Because this is, starts out singular. In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, God says to his Messiah, this holy one, this chosen one, this servant, he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Well, guess what we see happen when Jesus comes to the earth? We see him do that. We see him ask God for that. We see him ask to make the nations his heritage. And this says that God has answered him. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. That's salvation. That's rescue. 
Because when God makes a covenant, we talked about covenant last time, a covenant being a binding relationship where two or more parties swear on oath, on pain of death, to a kind of relationship where, where there are benefits and protections. When God gives a covenant, he is bound and determined he will keep it. And when he sends his son as the covenant, that means that he is sending the sure thing to protect us, the sure thing to keep us in him, just as he kept his son. It's also salvation, look, a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Now, in a sense, this already happened in a very small sense. Because after the Babylonian exile, the Israelites were allowed to go home. And they got a place back. They got land back. But they never, ever, ever, not even today, they never got the same amount of land back that they were apportioned when they were to divide the inheritance. And Jesus has already come. So what is this saying? This is saying that salvation includes a place for everyone. If you have trusted the Lord Jesus, there's a place for you in God's kingdom. There's a place for you to call home, home beyond all home, without strife or struggle. A place of peace and a heritage that we get to enjoy not this place not just for a little lifetime, but forever. The heart of God is for salvation. But not only for salvation, but in, part, in that salvation is for provision. Look what he says in verse 9. Saying to the prisoners, come out and those who are in darkness, appear. And when we are brought out of sin, one psalm says of the people of Israel when they came out, of the exile, they were as those who dream. They were finally going home. And when we are brought out of sin into the presence of Jesus, we are provided for. Look, they shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. Now, does that mean we will never suffer in this lifetime? No, that's not what that means. But what that does mean is that when Paul faced a thorn in his flesh and he pleaded with God to take it away, take away his suffering, what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. What he's saying here is that every moment, good or bad, in our lives now and into eternity where it's all good, we shall be provided for no matter where we are. Because they're provided for in places where there shouldn't be pasture. If you've ever been up in, in the Rocky Mountains, there's a place where the trees stop and there's just bare, mostly bare rock and a little bit of vegetation. Pasture is not supposed to be there, but here it says that's where there's going to be pasture. That's where they're going to be provided for. 
and on the paths through the desert where they went into exile, where scorching wind, sun struck them, it's not going to be the case anymore. We, don't have to, we won't have to strive against the hardness of this life forever. The heart of God is for provision. But thirdly, the heart of God is for compassion. Look what it says in verse 10. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall, come, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, these from the land of Syene. And then it says at the end of verse 13, For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now this might be hard for us to swallow as individual Americans, somewhat self-made people, or so we'd like to believe. He says, for he who has pity on them will lead them. Do you know what self-made people are in God's sight? Pitiful. Do you know what God thinks of people who think they can live on their own, by their own efforts, DIY all the time? Pitiful. Do you know what God thinks about the people who mooch off the system and think they are totally dependent? Pitiful. Pitiful. But what is the heart of God? Compassion. Because people who are pitiful, all of us, God takes pity on and shows compassion for and that's why he makes all his mountains a road and his highways shall be raised up so that we can easily come to him. And that's what Jesus did. He made the way to God so clear, unbelievably easy, too good to be true easy because we say all you need to do is believe that he did it and who he is. That's it. And we're like, no, 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 no. There's so many other world religions out there, and something inside us just says we've got to work hard to get this. We've got to make some sort of contribution here. No, you can't. You are not allowed to contribute to God's glory unless he saves you, and then it is his glory through you. We are to receive his compassion Everyone is to receive his compassion. Because look what he says. These from the north, from the west, those from the land of Syene, and these shall come from afar. The people who come from afar come from the east. So guess what? Syene is in the southern part of the land of Egypt. So what is he saying? God's going to show compassion on everybody. North, south, east, west.
And that's why the heavens are commanded to sing for joy. And that's why the earth is to exult. And that's why the mountains are to break forth in singing. Because the Lord has comforted his people with light. And will have compassion on his afflicted. We should rejoice that God has sent us light. His name is Jesus Christ. And so when he comes into our lives, we're restored to minimum configuration. We're no longer dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And when we're restored to minimum configuration, guess what God does? We are made new creatures in Christ who grow as new creatures in Christ. And then his mission becomes our mission. Because what message are we to proclaim, church? We're to proclaim this same message. That the light is available for everyone. Irrespective of direction. Irrespective of how dark it was or is. We're to proclaim that good comes from this. It's not just saved from sin. It's saved to beautiful, good life, which is truly life. If you look at these verses in 9 through 12 and you, say, you can't see that this is abundant life where prisoners come out of prison, that those who are in darkness actually see and find light and that those who are on desolate places are provided for and that they are led by springs of water by someone who will never lead them astray. If that is not life, then we can't define life. But it's here because this is the life that we are to proclaim to people. This is the light we are to proclaim to people because now we, as the people of God, joined with those people of God, are the city set on a hill. And we are to let our light so shine before others that they may see our good works and what? Glorify our Father who is in heaven. We should rejoice that Jesus has been sent. We should rejoice that the light has been sent to us. Let's pray.